Turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll start in verse 11 here momentarily. There's only two more sermons left in this uh, second inspired letter to the church meeting in the city of Corinth. And it seems in the last passage of this letter, Paul is once more seeking to prove himself. And then finally challenging the people of Corinth to prove themselves by the same means. So we'll get to that next week. But as we've seen in the preceding body of the letter, there's a conflict um, that is kind of an uh, an undergirding context to the entire letter. There's a conflict between Paul and some of the people in the city of Corinth. And um, unlike our modern churches today, back then the people in the churches had problems and uh, there was sometimes drama and conflict. Um, wow, that one went, went over real well. Thank you, thank you. Um, so as <laughs> as we have seen uh, that there was this conflict between Paul and, and at least some of the people in the city of Corinth and the church going, that uh, was in the city of Corinth, and the, the specific accusations against Paul were in part that he was seeking to fleece the Corinthians and to get rich off of them. And it just seems he wasn't real good at it, I guess. Um, they, <laughs> they accused him of not being a real apostle, um, that he was a counterfeit. Um, we'll address some of those accusations in the final chapter next week. We've also seen, though, in his defense of himself... Um, and in the testimonies of those who worked with him and the, the, the real evidence, the real counterfeits were the men who were spreading the false rumors about Paul. And um, so the awkward position in which this places Paul is to have to defend himself along with his apostolic direction and instruction for the church. And... Um, that's a tough position for someone who's teaching God's word to be put in, to have to you know, prove that he is authentic and, and uh, to verify constantly uh, that the accusations are not true so that he might share with them the truths of the word of God. And, and, um, and while at times, as you read through 2 Corinthians, for instance, at times... It makes our study of Paul's writings just a little bit tedious. As tedious as anyone who is defending themselves against something um, that you're not guilty of accusing them of, right? I mean, whenever someone just always starts with defending themselves. And in Paul's case, he was truly under attack and needed to defend himself. To us as the reader... We're convinced about Paul. You know, he's kind of proven himself. He's got most of the New Testament under his belt. So, you know, we, we, we're not suspecting him of being a false apostle. Um, so sometimes the study of, of these letters to the Corinthians may seem just a little bit tedious, but it does provide some added benefit to us as well. As, 
as a matter of fact, it also humanizes the Apostle Paul in a way that is really helpful to us. In Paul's defense of himself, he clearly lays out the definition of a genuine servant of God and a minister of Christ. And he shows himself to be a proven minister of Christ. And, and that's how we're going to focus um, on our text this morning. We're going to look for these signs of authenticity that Paul claims for himself. And we're going to apply those signs to our lives as a challenge. We're going to ask ourselves if we are also proven ministers of Christ. And, you know, when we study the life of the Apostle Paul, we find it easy to come to the conclusion that he might have been the greatest Christian that walked the face of this earth since Christ. And we have what we have here is Paul's self-evaluation, if you will. He's pointing out here things in his life that he sees as proof of his authenticity. From Paul's perspectives, these are achievements in ministry. Think of it like this. Have you ever listened to an interview of a proven athlete and have been surprised by their perspective on their life and their achievements? I mean, is anyone here? How many of you like uh, football? All right, so this is going to be relevant to about four of you. Yeah. <laughs> so so this, this is a perfect illustration to choose then. Um, so... <laughs> So, you listen to an interview of one of these um, athletes that perhaps has been some sort of a athletic hero, if not a moral one, because there's those two rarely coincide. Um, <laughs> um, and and you, you listen to an interview uh, and and them answering questions about their lives and their achievements. And a lot of times the interviewer is surprised, and I'm surprised by their answers. Perhaps there's things about their lives and their achievements that you thought were very difficult, and they see them as the easier aspects of their accomplishments. What they point out as truly great accomplishments are not necessarily recognized as such by the rest of us. We tend to see just a small portion of the career of a proven athlete. And we might easily miss those aspects of their life and career that made them great. But from their own mouth, when they tell you, well, this is what was hard. This is, this is where I grew the most. This is, it was this discipline here that really had the greatest benefit in my life. And you say, oh, really? That doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But... Or perhaps he thought that wasn't necessary. So, we tend to see just part of their career, and, and, and that's, we learn those aspects of their life that, that made them great through a personal testimony from them. That's why I love to listen to them describe their lives from their own perspectives. Take one of NF, NF, the NFL's classiest players, um, Jerry Rice. There's not a whole lot of them that I'll mention from the pulpit in any way as being good, but, you know. Um, 
and don't get me wrong, I'm, I, I'm not uh, putting him forward as a theologian you should follow or anything, but he's a classy player. All right, so here's a guy that outperformed his opponents on the field consistently, right? And it seems he could have, he could almost always get to a ball that would be missed by some of the best wide receivers in the league. And you might get the impression that he was just genetically blessed. That speed and agility came natural to him. Well, besides his freakish hands. Um, the, <laughs> that really wasn't the case. Um, the truth is that there's always been players on the field that were more naturally inclined to that position than Jerry Rice. And... Um, what many do not know about Jerry is that he never really took an off season. He would he'd win the Super Bowl one day and he would be out on the field running sprints the next day by himself. He showed up early to practice and he left late every single time. He was an exhibition of human discipline more than physical excellence. And these perspectives of Jerry's, of Jerry's career, they don't come from the greater body of press on his achievements because they're, really, they're, they're not all that flashy. But from his own answers, this information comes to interview questions and to the testimony of his teammates. You have to dig a little bit to find out what made him great on the field. Our hero today didn't catch footballs. The Apostle Paul is nevertheless a hero for his ministry accomplishments. And in our text today, we see from Paul's defense of himself certain aspects of his life that made him a proven minister of Christ. These things are not necessarily known by those who are not engaged in ministry, but they should be known. These things Paul mentions, some of these things that Paul mentions, people that aren't fully engaged in doing the Lord's work, they, they would not be able to tell you this was required of a proven minister of Christ. But the Apostle Paul brings them up as proof of his ministry. The prophet of today's sermon is twofold. Number one, it gives us the opportunity to hold ourselves up against the Apostle Paul and see areas of needed improvement in our lives and in our ministries. And if you hold yourself up against the Apostle Paul and walk away unconvicted, you have got some serious problems <laughs> about being honest with yourself. All right? <laughs> it also gives us a glimpse into the ministry achievements of Paul and helps us to recognize the sacrifice that's made by those who minister to us. And keep these things in mind while we read through our text. We're going to start in 2 Corinthians, and we are in chapter 12. We're going to pick up in verse 11 where we left off last week. I am become a fool in glorying. Ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest of apostles, though I be nothing. 
Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you. And I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. But be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? Again, think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear, lest when I come... I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you as ye would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. And lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to open this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth and let your Holy Spirit speak to us. I just pray, Lord, that today you would challenge us from this text, that you would challenge us to um, to be proven ministers of Christ that we might recognize these characteristics in the Apostle Paul's life and apply them to our own. God, if there's someone here today that hasn't yet come to that place in their heart where they recognize themselves to be sinners fallen short of God's standard of righteousness, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would um, teach them today and draw them to that point that they might receive Christ as their Savior. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. From the opening phrase of the passage, we see Paul is still commenting, as we've seen over the last two chapters, he's still commenting on the foolish appearance of his previous boasting, which was earlier in the letter, off and on. He points out again that talking about his own achievements and his qualifications, it's just not something that he would really want to do of his own accord. Um, When Paul finds himself talking about what he's accomplished and the proofs of his ministry, it's not a good feeling that he has. And he says, I know this sounds foolish. He keeps keeps saying, I know this sounds foolish. Now I've made myself look like a fool again because here I am tooting my own horn again. But um, 
he felt the need to defend his apostolic authority. And, I mean, if anyone had the right to defend themselves um, in this case, it was certainly the Apostle Paul. So, he would rather um, be... He, he, he's, he is rather driven to this defense of himself by the attacks against him and by the aspersions that are cast against him by false teachers and counterfeit apostles. Now, we can start looking for those aspects of Paul's life that we can emulate or recognize for our own spiritual benefit, and you can see it right away, right there in verse 11. And I'd like you to just kind of follow along as we look through these points um, and... And just follow along in the text there in verse 11. He says, I am become a fool and glorying. You've compelled me. He says, for I ought to have been commended of you. You see that? For I ought to have been commended of you. You know what the Apostle Paul is doing here? He's recognizing the rightful place of the people in the church at Corinth. You know what their rightful place was? To commend the Apostle Paul for his qualifications in ministry and his accomplishments and his submissiveness and sacrifice for for Christ. He'd earned it. I mean, we look at the Apostle Paul's life and we say, how did you not recognize this guy for what he was? He had earned this commendation of man. The Apostle Paul is just pointing out that fact. I mean, to us, it seems like he's pointing out the obvious. He's saying, you really ought to have commended me. And back in verse 11, he says, For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest of apostles. He says, you know, uh, I mean, who, who would you think he's referring to when he says the very chiefest of apostles? Peter seems to be the most vocal leader in Jerusalem, right? Everyone seems to recognize Peter. They seem to recognize James and and their authority and their position. Paul, you know, he didn't walk with Christ as a disciple. And so some thought him to be one of the least of the apostles. And he says, you know what? (laughs) That's not the way I was commissioned. When the risen Christ commissioned me as one of the twelve apostles, um, he made it real clear. You stand right up there with Peter. This isn't about um, hierarchy. Apostles are apostles. And and he, he makes this claim for himself. He actually has the right to demand this commendation. To say that would be the right way for you to think of me in my ministry. And... Um, But I'd like to point this out, that a lack of commendation in Paul's life did not hinder him in ministry. Let me tell you something. If you are serving Christ, and the way you serve Christ is you serve his people, all right? So if you're serving God's people, there's going to be times in your ministry when you don't get credit for what you've done. More often than not. And, I mean, not everyone's lucky enough to be the pastor to get to stand up here and brag about what I've done all day, and so everyone thinks I do everything. Sometimes people come and thank me for things that I didn't even know were done. 
you know. <laughs> but so, so I'm not talking about me, okay? I, I don't want you all to think, oh man, I need to write Pastor Josh a letter and give him some commendation. He's not getting enough credit. That, that's not what I'm. That's not what this is about, all right? <laughs> okay. I'm talking about those of you who serve God's people that sacrifice for Him and for the cause of Christ and don't get the commendation. Well, here in this case, the Apostle Paul shows us that a proven, a proven minister of Christ is not dependent on men's commendation. The Corinthian church, Paul had visited twice and was going to visit a third time. I mean, he was responsible for the strength and the size of that church. He was responsible for the, the depth of their spiritual life. And, and he had sacrificed so much for them. As a matter of fact, more than for any of the other churches that he was instrumental in starting. And, he, and, and yet from them, all he got was criticism. Can I tell you something? What well, the Apostle Paul proves here in his mention of their lack of commendation for him is that a proven minister of Christ is not dependent on man's commendation. You got one thing that not getting credit for what you do for Christ, not getting human credit for what you do for Christ, you know one thing that'll do? It'll prove to you who you're working for. <laughs> because if you're working for God... Who cares what man says? Who cares that man didn't recognize? I mean, it's nice. It really is. But a proven minister of Christ can work without man's commendation. And in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul puts forward a, a, the, the similar truth, he says, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. That's a pretty strong statement, right? That last little statement that he just made in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, right? What he's saying is, if you work for the commendation of, of people, and if your service for God is contingent on the commendation of man, and dependent thereon, you're not serving Christ. That's a pretty powerful statement. Because you, I mean, you thought you were, <laughs> and and it's a. I, I understand the feeling when you don't get the credit or whatever that you feel like you need. But remember who we're serving here. The Apostle Paul says, "Look, if I if I if I'm dependent on man's commendation, then I'm not working." For Christ, I'm working for men. Let's just look at the next point, and it's in verse 11 also. And it, it, I love the way the Apostle Paul, after saying what he says in verse 11, closes that verse out. He says, though I be nothing. You see that? Though I be nothing. He just claimed to be right up there with the Apostle Peter. He claimed to be a person on earth with the highest authority of any other human. That was the, that was the, the position the apostles held. That's pretty, that's pretty up there, right? I mean, he had more spiritual authority than any human on earth except for the other apostles. And he, they didn't have any more than him. So he makes this claim for himself. And then he points out that, you know, it would have been right for you to provide commendation for the work that I've done for you. 
in service of you. But then he ends the, ends the verse with almost like a reminder to himself. You know what that makes me, Paul says? Nothing. It makes me nothing. You know, um, if, if you don't recognize your nothingness, you are much less useful in God's work. And a proven minister of Christ is not made prideful by authority. The Apostle Paul points out his position of authority, his, his rightful claim to commendation, but he says, I am nothing. And that seems important to me. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul's genuine humility comes forward. He says, unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You think about the Apostle Paul's ministry and his desire to bring Christ to the Jewish people and then to find out that God had pointed him at the Gentiles. (laughs) And you know what the Apostle Paul said? He said, I'm nothing. I'm the least of all saints. And for God to give me a task that wasn't the one I picked, what a privilege that is. And that's a different way to think about ministry, right? It's a different way to think about the Apostle Paul and what made him who he was. A proven minister of Christ is not made prideful by authority. And so we move on to the next, uh, the next verse, just in verse 12. And I want you to see that a proven minister of Christ shows the signs relevant to their position. Um, in verse 12, he says, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The fact is, when you're working for God, there are certain signs that follow you. What the Apostle Paul is trying to convince the Corinthian church is that he exhibited those signs. Now, the qualifications of an apostle were to be commissioned as an apostle by the risen Christ. All right? So that's his qualifications. But there are signs that were supposed to follow the work of an apostle. And Paul proved himself in, the work, in his work at Corinth by all of these signs and wonders that he did. Just kind of reminding them, you saw all this stuff that I was doing, right? I mean, did you miss that? <laughs> because I'm being told I'm a counterfeit apostle and I, all the signs followed me. I served God the way God told me to serve him. Now, I want you to make this application to your own life. Because we don't have any apostles in here. There's no one that old, right? Um, but, I mean, Mike's close, but. <laughs> no, that we don't, have any, we don't have any apostles in here, but you realize that there are signs that are supposed to follow you as a servant of God? I mean, if I were to ask for a show of hands as to which one of you counted yourself a servant of Christ, a, a, a proven servant of Christ, there might be some hands that would go up. Well, I certainly want to be counted as such, right? 
Well, then you should know that a servant of Christ has certain signs that are supposed to follow them. In the same way, it was expected for these signs to follow the Apostle Paul in his ministry. Some of these signs um, are mentioned in Ephesians chapter one, uh, chapter 5. It says, Be therefore followers of God as dear children. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a follower of God? What does it mean to be one of his disciples and to be one of his servants? Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once, not, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather give thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, which is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Turns out that as a follower of God, as a servant of Christ, there are certain signs that are supposed to follow your life. Now, the list that we've just read of things that are not supposed to be a part of your life, they are part and parcel of the lives of many professing Christians. What does that mean? It means the signs are not following their calling. We need to make sure that we take on the characteristics of a follower of God of a servant of Christ. It should be evident to the world around us, wow, they live different than the rest of the world. Why do they live different than the rest of the world? Well, it's because they don't follow the same thing the rest of the world follows. They, they're followers of God. They're servants of Christ. And, and it is proven by these characteristics in their lives. Some of those characteristics that are absent, some of those characteristics that are present. So, the next thing we see in verse 13 is that a proven minister of Christ sacrifices for difficult people. A proven minister of Christ sacrifices for difficult people. Look at verse 13. For what is it wherein you were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now, I want you to, to look at that and see the context. You can, you can kind of read into the context just a little bit and see why Paul might say this. He says, what are you, talk, what are you talking about inferior? What? He's obviously answering a question. It seems quite clear that they had accused him of thinking of them as an inferior church. That he had slighted them in some way. And he says, what do you talk about inferior? Inferior in what way? Except, I mean, the only thing different that I did with you guys is I didn't take any money from you. I mean, yeah, inferior, right? You know what this makes the people in the Corinthian church? Paul's most difficult people to whom he ministered. Certain in the Corinthian church felt slighted by Paul's ministry. Perhaps this is because he had sought to visit them at one point and then he didn't make it. They were deeply offended by this. 
Perhaps there were other factors of which we're unaware, but Paul saw their accusations as somewhat ironic. And you can see in his answer there in verse 13. And, um, but they're also tragic. If anything, he had given more and sacrificed more for them than for other churches. It's the fact that he took no monetary support from them for himself that for which he apologizes. And for this, I mean, as if this is what was so offensive to them. He does actually apologize. It is, it is heartbreaking to give everything you have in ministry and then have someone complain that they've been slighted by you. The instinct is for a minister to look inside himself or herself to check and make sure that there was nothing else to give. To make certain that nothing was held back. And then that's when the heartache sets in as a minister realizes that they, they just weren't good enough to meet someone's expectations. That's what the Apostle Paul was put through by the criticism of the Corinthian church. He says, he says I, I mean, I gave you more than anyone else. That made them the hardest people to minister to out of all the churches. He'd given them the most, and they were the most critical, the most hurtful to the Apostle Paul. And from that place in a person's ministry, and let me try to get you there as well, because perhaps you can identify with this to some extent in how you've tried to help somebody. Or you've tried to be the hands and feet of Christ in someone's life. And you've sacrificed and given as much as you possibly could. And the wound comes from the person you've sacrificed for the most. Think about where you were in your heart when that happened. Because that's where the Apostle Paul is here. I think from there... Depart from that place in a minister's heart, depart several crossroads. One of those roads is labeled, has a big street sign that says, Fine then. (laughs) And it veers only towards those who are easier to work with. And then there's another road that leads right back to that difficult, offended person's door and pleads for another opportunity to continue ministering to them. And that's the road that Paul took. And it wasn't that Paul didn't have options. It wasn't that there was no place that the Apostle Paul could go to minister where people appreciated him. As a matter of fact, just about everywhere else. 
There were plenty of other churches out there that needed Paul's help, that needed his ministry. In Philippi, he made a similar comment and a commitment to sacrifice without the implication of difficulty or the lack of appreciation. He says, yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, he says, I joy and rejoice with you all. He loved sacrificing for the Philippian church. You know why? They were so appreciative. They just loved Paul up. And the Apostle Paul, you can tell from his letter to them that he's just trying to encourage them. And he, he, he says, you know, I, I, I'd give you anything I had and you'd do the same for me. It's so great working with you. For Paul, the Corinthian church was difficult. But he continued to minister to them despite their drama, despite their difficulty. See, that's what a proven minister of Christ does. He doesn't say, well, you know what? Fine then. I have people that are they're happy. <laughs> Let me help them, you know? They don't complain about everything I do. (laughs) Proven minister of Christ sacrifices for difficult people. In verse 15, I want you to see that a proven minister of Christ is willing to serve without appreciation. I mean, to some extent, look at verse 15, all right? It says, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you. Oh, I just skipped a point. I skipped verse 14. Forget that I said that. Look back at verse uh, 14. All right. Behold, the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, for the parents, for the children. What we see here is a proven minister of Christ cares like a parent for his children. And that kind of explains to some extent why you'd go back to the well even though the water was bitter. Right? (laughs) Because, I mean, it's your kids, right? I mean, no one, not everyone has perfect kids like I do. It's just always easy and... No. <laughs> you, just, you just love them because they're yours. You know, God, you, you, a proven minister of Christ cares like a parent for his children. I mean, we recognize the difference, right? I don't get to lay down the law. I don't get to snap my belt and make it happen. I don't do that anyway. I just, you know, just kind of put a picture in your mind. <laughs> but I tell you what, the love is there in the same in the same uh, same sense. Galatians four and verse nineteen, we see that's how Paul looked at the people in the church in Galatia. He says, "My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you." I mean, you could tell the the relationship that he felt with the Christians in the church in Galatia. And, and you know John says the same thing in his general letter to the church in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 he says my little children these things write I unto you that you sin not and if any man sin we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous later on in chapter 3 and verse 18 he says my little children let us not love in word neither in tongue but in deed and in truth this wasn't like a junior church letter here. It was that that's how he that's how he felt about the people to whom God had called him. And a proven minister of Christ cares like a parent cares for his children. Now, verse 15 
Verse 15 says, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. And that brings us to the sixth point. A proven minister of Christ is willing to serve without appreciation. I mean, it harkens back somewhat to our previous point, but it can be applied across a larger spectrum. Paul's proclamation here is convicting. When we read testimonies of people, or when we talk to people who have left the ministry, there's always laced into their most emotional strata of reasoning that people just didn't appreciate what they did. And I'm talking about I'm talking about you. Helping people. You remember when you used to serve more? You used to reach out and sacrifice for people. And you and you're like, yeah, I don't know. It just wasn't worth it. You remember feeling like that, right? Hey, look, if you've engaged in ministry, you've gone through these feelings, all right? It's not just me. I'm not the only backslidden one here. You, you feel like I just wasn't appreciated. No, people just didn't realize what I was doing. See, a proven minister of Christ is willing to serve without appreciation. The Apostle Paul says, you know what? If the more I, if the more I love you, the less you love me, so be it. That's, that's not why I'm serving. And a proven minister of Christ is willing to serve without appreciation. Make that application in your own life. Paul had seen this uh, reality. He's, he's paid the price, he says, and that's a price that I'm, I'm willing to pay. Quite frankly, it's a price that Jesus paid. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Have you, at times, in your service for God, quit because you felt unappreciated? Maybe it's time to get back in the saddle. The seventh point that we see here is that a proven minister of Christ is not concerned with personal gain. A proven minister of Christ is not concerned with personal gain. Verses 16 through 19 is a larger section than these other points, uh, than those from which these other points have come. But um, you see the, large, the, the greater emphasis of it is Paul's reiteration that he was not after the Corinthians' money. (laughs) As Paul made his defense against the accusations that he'd sought to get rich off of the Corinthian church, it became clear pretty quickly that Paul had not taken any money from them at all. Now, the accusers had kind of come up with this as a given. They thought, they figured every minister was out for money, right? I mean, they were. And so they accused the Apostle Paul publicly of being out for the Corinthians money before they did the research and find out that he hadn't taken any money from them. So when some people in the Corinthian church defended the Apostle Paul and said, well, actually, we never paid him. (laughs) They said, oh, well, um, but he sent Titus, right? And I'll bet he, uh, he tried to get money out of you. And that's, you see, the accusers had to pivot in their accusations and and then they claimed that Paul had sent others to Corinth on his behalf, that they had taken their money. I mean, this too was false, and Paul uses irony in verse 16. It's one of the reasons why I love the writings of the Apostle Paul is his uh, generous use of irony. He says, But be it so, I did not burden you. 
the irony comes in after the word nevertheless. Being crafty, I caught you with guile. I tricked you. <laughs> you thought you were paying me nothing, but I was just being really tricky. And then he moves on. He's like, of course I didn't take any money from you. I mean, <laughs> he's, he says, look at all the evidence. Maybe I was just really, really good at being tricky. Right? <laughs> He says, I think I tricked my banker, too. You know? <laughs> Might have even tricked myself. Do uh, you see a little irony in what he says here? Oh, I caught you with guile. Um, so, <laughs> Paul had, he, all he had was their own spiritual benefit at heart. Um, he said in his first letter to the Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 33 says even as I please all men in all things not seeking mine own profit but the profit of many that they may be saved he says I'm I'm here for your profit not mine Paul only had the spiritual benefit of the church at heart not his own gain and this must be evidenced in the life of a proven minister of Christ there's so much corruption in the name of Christ we must always steer clear of the appearance of it um, the eighth point that I see here is in verses 20 and 21 where it seems to almost end on a negative note a proven minister of Christ warns against spiritual dangers and sin but that's part of what a proven minister of Christ must be willing to do you can look at the fears that's the word Paul uses in verse 20 look at the fears that the apostle has for the church in Corinth He's concerned that they might forget that great cause and the mission for which the church was built. That they might start picking each other apart. That they might look inward too much and never, never looking outward towards their mission. The results of that would be infightings and, to use Paul's words, debates and envyings and wraths and strifes and backbitings and whisperings and swellings and tumults. That should not characterize the congregation of a church. But how often it does. <laughs> and Paul fears this. He sees danger and he warns them against it. He knows the human dynamic of the church and he recognizes the inherent dangers. He doesn't avoid the subject. He faces it head on and he warns those to whom God has brought him to minister. Listen, if you're called at any level to ministry, I don't know why I said if. You are called at some level to ministry. Okay? I don't want you to think that you're not one of the ones all right you are called at some level to ministry and as such you're placed as a watchman on the wall needing to be able to recognize danger and warn against it we have this ministry to each other in the final verse of our text you see the warning theme continues but increases to address the danger of specific unrepentant sin as well. Beloved, God is wholly concerned with purity in the lives of his people. He doesn't wink at fornication and adultery. 
just because the world has embraced it as natural. God still abhors it as much as he did the day he carved its prohibition into the rock of Sinai. The the proven minister of Christ must be willing to warn against spiritual danger and sin. Now, if you have kind of glazed over until this last point, and finally you say, well, now this is something I can sink my teeth into. I can do this. I can point out people's sins and I can make sure everyone knows about how they're messing up. Now, yeah, I can be a proven minister of Christ. If this last point has caught your attention as the one that fits your abilities and tendencies, I want you to do this for me. Forget everything that you've heard today. Because you've already forgotten what God meant for you. Okay? A proven minister of God will relish and embrace these first seven points. And only with trembling and humility accept this last one as part and parcel with the rest. The warning must go out. But that warning is wholly compromised and adulterated by a lack of full engagement on all these other fronts. The warning against sin from the compromised character will more likely push people towards the danger than away from it. These characteristics of a proven minister of Christ, they matter. All of them matter. I can encourage you towards embracing them all and tell you how ultimately rewarding it is. But you will never understand until you've immersed yourself in his work. If some of this just doesn't sound familiar to you at all, if it just seems foreign, say, wow, that is not how I pictured the ministry. That's not how I pictured working for God. I did not think being a servant of Christ was about all that. That seems difficult. (laughs) Look, if that's the case, let me just challenge you. Jump in with both feet. Every minute of it is worth it. Oh, it is difficult. But it's what God made you to do. And as a member of his church... You've specifically signed on to the task. This might, might as well start fulfilling your responsibilities, right? God will reward you for it. Take these points home. Study them. Apply them to your life. See how God might use you to make a difference in the lives of people around you. Perhaps you're here today without full assurance of your salvation. You say, yeah, you know, I, I understand this, this uh, construct of religion. It's kind of attractive to me. But I don't know if I was to die right now, if I'd go to heaven, perhaps you, like so many, say, I'm not sure I'm good enough. Let me tell you something. 
if you're not sure you're good enough, you have taken one big step in the right direction, and I can assure you without a shadow of a doubt, you are not good enough. All right? And we all have to come to that point where we recognize it is only dressed in the righteousness of Christ that I am worthy to stand in the presence of God. So you may ask then, how do I get the righteousness of Christ? That I would love to show you from my Bible. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. It is entitled, I Surrender All. It's the... It's the commitment that you should make if you're going to be a minister of Christ, but it's the commitment that you will make if you're to accept Jesus as your Savior. Go ahead and stand as we sing, All to Jesus I Surrender. If you'd like to learn more about how to be born into the family of God, then I would love to show you from my Bible how you can do that. Just come and sit in the front row while we sing this first stanza, All to Jesus I Surrender.